Welcome to Safety Bites, a weekly podcast on all things related to workplace safety, hosted by me, Jason Schaffenbuhl. The thoughts expressed in this podcast are based upon my opinion and general best practices, which may not apply to all listeners. Always consult with a qualified professional before making any changes in your organization. I'll warn you, this podcast is a bit longer than most. This is a brief summary of a one-hour lecture I used to give in a college-level occupational safety course I taught. I personally find the topic interesting, and I hope you do as well, so let's jump right into the history of workplace safety. The first documented example of workplace safety is from around 2000 BC, when Hammurabi, a Babylonian ruler, put into place laws that provided the first form of workers' compensation. One of the laws stated if a person has caused the loss of an eye of a servant, the individual shall pay half of the servant's price. I'll admit, this isn't like today's laws that make the injured employee whole, as these laws only protected the master. About 1500 BC, Ramses III hired physicians to care for miners and quarry workers engaged in the construction of public works projects. Beyond the moral obligation to keep employees safe, history has shown us the economic impact of injuries is a strong driver of safety. This is still true today with the threat of OSHA penalties and workers' compensation costs due to injury. Not much change in workplace safety until the Industrial Revolution. It represented a rapid change in the economy marked by the introduction of power-driven machinery. Steam power and machines replaced people and animals. As one early safety professional said, quote, In every industry, the substitution of mechanical devices for manual methods has introduced corresponding elements of danger, end quote. In 1842, Massachusetts Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw ruled that a company was not liable for the injury to the employee that was caused by the negligence of a, quote, fellow servant, end quote, or co-worker. This served as the foundation of fellow servant laws that made it difficult for employees to recover damages from the employers for injuries they may have suffered. Employees were required to assume the ordinary risks inherent in the workplace. If an employee's own negligence or the negligence of co-workers led to the injury, the employee was prevented from recovering any damages from the employer, even if the employer was negligent. For an employee to win damages, the employee had to show he had complete ignorance of some extraordinary risk involved in his work that the employee in no way contributed to the injury, and there was no core worker at fault for the injury. It was almost impossible for employees to show that they weren't aware of the hazards of their jobs, that they did everything they could to not become injured, and that no other employees of the company contributed to conditions that led to the injury. Often, business owners would make prospective employees sign forms indicating they agreed to assume the risk of their employment. Thus, employees were getting injured, and they had no means to hold business owners accountable. The best example of this was in the railroad industry. In 1875, on average in Ohio, if a railroad injured an employee, it paid an average of $38. If the employee were to die, it paid an average of $43. If the railroad were to kill a cow, horse, sheep, or hog, the average paid to the owner was $79. In 1877, Massachusetts passed the nation's first factory safety inspection law. This law appointed state inspectors and required guarding of belts, shafts, gears, and drums, fire prevention, and general cleanliness. By 1890, 21 other states followed with their own factory inspection laws. By 1900, while most states had implemented workplace safety regulations, there were fairly lax. Massachusetts was only issuing two or three citations a year. In 1907, 3,200 employees were killed in the United States coal mines, 4,500 employees were killed in railroad accidents, and 16 of 80 electrical union members in New York City were killed. Out of every 100,000 employees in the country, 140 were killed on the job. For comparison, in 2018, only 3.5 employees per 100,000 died on the job. 
The modern safety movement began in 1906 at U.S. Steel. Albert Gary, the chairman of the board of U.S. Steel, met with the organization's casualty managers, the people who dealt with workplace injury and fatality claims, determined what could be done to prevent injuries and better control the costs of injuries. They decided to form a safety committee and start a voluntary accident relief program which paid benefit to the wives and children of employees killed on the job. Elbert stated that the proper treatment of employees diminishes the attractiveness of the ideals of the anarchist or socialist. In simpler terms, it was good for employee relations and an advantage for employers. U.S. Steel reported that in 1912 they were spending $750,000 per year on safety and saving $1.4 million per year in reduced injury payments. U.S. Steel found that safety provided a positive return on its investment and created a workplace where employees were less likely to unionize. When employees were injured or killed, employers were sued under employment liability law. While the fellow servant laws made it challenging for employees to win, they were beginning to have more and more success. The state of Illinois in 1910 did a study of 614 workers killed on the job three years earlier. They found that 30% of the families received no compensation for their loved one's deaths. 46% of the family settled out of court for an average benefit of $1,144. 4% of the family successfully sued in court for an average of $1,364. And 18% of the families were still pursuing benefits. Employers, however, were irritated because they were purchasing liability insurance, but carriers rarely paid out, even though the employers were paying employees and their families via settlements and lawsuits. Because of this, a discussion on changing employers' liability began to take shape. Labor unions generally did not want to replace the existing system. While burdensome to employees and their families, benefits were a little higher when suing employers through employers' liability. Employers, however, wanted a different system. Ultimately, in 1911, the state of Wisconsin was the first state to pass an effective workers' compensation law, better known as the Grand Bargain. Within 20 years, almost all states had workers' compensation laws in place, each based on the ideals of the Grand Bargain, but with individual state nuances. While there have been discussions over the years to have a more federal approach to workers' compensation laws in the United States, this has never gained traction, and each state has its own workers' compensation process. Workers' compensation is called the grand bargain because it forced employees to give up the right to sue their employers when they suffered work-related injury and death in exchange for swift compensation, regardless of where the fault lies. While the benefits were modest, generally limited to the cost of medical treatment and lost wages, employees were typically seeing benefits greater than what they were getting through the courts, and employers were saving money because they were not defending those claims in court. It was truly intended to be a win-win for employees and employers. It is unclear if there was simply an awakening consciousness about the benefits of workplace safety or the increased employer costs associated with workers' compensation, but safety in the workplace received more attention. In the 1920s, private efforts were undertaken to standardize equipment in the workplace. However, The variety of safety standards across the states hampered efforts to sell safer products. By 1928, there were 40 voluntary consensus standards created covering products such as grinding wheels, machine tools, and power transmission devices. Insurance companies were active in providing employers with safety information to reduce the potential for workplace injuries, including development of safety bulletins, posters, movies, and best practices. Through the 1930s, workplace safety was proactive. Employers were trying to engineer out hazards through factory layout, equipment design, hazard assessments, and job evaluations. There was little involvement of employees in safety, but injuries were decreasing because of the focus on eliminating exposures. In 1936, the Walsh-Healy Act was signed into law. It was a result of an executive order issued by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He wanted to ensure a basis of fair competition for government contracts. 
The Act established overtime pay for workers beyond 40 hours per week, established a minimum wage, and created health and safety standards for government contracts exceeding $15,000 for the manufacturing or furnishing of goods. From the 1930s to the 1970s, states continued with their factory safety laws. Workplace injuries continued to decrease, and companies established safety departments to help improve workplace safety. During this time, the Walsh-Healy Act continued to be amended to require compliance with consensus standards, inspectors were hired, and an inspection manual was created. Given that all of the states had their own safety requirements, and the Walsh-Healy Act only applied to employers who had government contracts, there was inconsistency in what safety regulations employers had to comply with from state to state and business to business. In 1963, it was decided to update the workplace safety requirements of the Walsh-Healy Act. Ultimately, this discussion led to the creation of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which established OSHA to bring consistency to the individual state safety regulations. This consistency established multiple things. It provided manufacturers of equipment with a consistent set of safety requirements across states so they didn't need to produce equipment that was specific to each state's requirements. It ensured that safety requirements were consistent from state to state so that businesses in a state with extremely restrictive safety requirements were not at a competitive disadvantage to employers in states with lax safety requirements. It also allowed employers with facilities in multiple states to develop safety programs and policies that could be used across states instead of policies and programs that were specific to individual state requirements. Today, we still have the same OSHA that was created in 1970, 50 years ago, and it continues to evolve, albeit slowly, to meet the needs of today's society. This podcast reviewed the history of workplace safety. Your homework is to think about the safety programs in your organization. Have they kept up with the needs of your company? I hope you enjoyed this podcast and will join me next week. Until then, please make time each day to create a safer workplace.